Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Pettiprin. In each episode, we bring you in-depth conversations with Catholic authors, focusing on the most important cultural and ecclesiastical matters of our age. For the past 40 years, Ignatius Press has been the leader in Catholic publishing, with a wide variety of media, of authors and titles, old and new. We invite you to learn more about us and explore our extensive offerings at ignatius.com. If you like what we do here on the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, follow us on social media, and please consider giving us a five-star review. We pray that this podcast will inspire you as you grow in your faith. Now, on with the show. Throughout Christian history, leaders who have been imprisoned or even killed for the sake of Christ have served to encourage the faithful in their own trials and to inspire non-Christians to consider the seriousness of the truth claims of our faith. St. Paul writes to the Philippians from prison, I want you to know, brethren, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brethren have been made confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment, and are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. In the 20th century, there were few more important or more inspiring prisoners for Christ than Joseph Cardinal Menzenti, the primate of Hungary who was persecuted and incarcerated by communists after World War I, then by the Nazis during World War II, then by the communists again in the late 1940s and 1950s. For most of his adult life, Cardinal Menzenti lived in bondage, refusing to accept repeated claims that he and his people had much to lose by not collaborating with diabolical regimes. In Christ, Cardinal Menzenti knew that he and the Hungarian nation and all people enslaved by fascism and communism would eventually be rewarded by remaining steadfast. In the midst of his struggles, Menzenti's witness was so powerful that there was even a film made in 1955 called The Prisoner, whose main character, played by Alec Guinness, is partly based on Menzenti. Today, the most enduring legacy of Menzenti's courage comes to us in his memoirs. Originally published in 1974, Cardinal Menzenti's memoirs bear witness to the radical cost of discipleship. On page after page, the Cardinal's witness to Christ blazes bright reminding us that there is no middle way between the absolute truth of the gospel and the anti-Christian ideology of totalitarianism in any of its forms. Moreover, Cardinal Menzenti's sanctified suffering reminds us that freedom of religion is not a right to be granted by secular states, nor merely a private, individualized preference to be tolerated in an officially non-religious public square. Rather, our freedom to worship God and organize society around him and his commandments is inherent to our dignity as creatures made by God. On these and so many other matters, the Christian conscience cannot claim nuance or neutrality. Ignatius Press has recently reissued Cardinal Menzenti's memoirs, and its reappearance now is timely. The book is a page-turner and a must-read for a new generation facing existential threats to freedom and flourishing. 
This handsome new addition features a wealth of photographs and historical documents, as well as a new foreword by Joseph Pierce and a new introduction by Professor Daniel J. Mahoney, who joins me today as my guest. Dan Mahoney is Professor Emeritus at Assumption University, where he held the Augustan Chair in Distinguished Scholarship, and he is currently Senior Fellow at the Claremont Institute. Dan Mahoney is the author of many books and articles, including The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity, and most recently, Recovering Politics, Civilization, and the Soul, Essays on Pierre Manon and Roger Scruton. I am delighted to welcome Dan Mahoney to the Ignatius Press Podcast. Dan Mahoney, welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. My pleasure. Well, let's get right into it. We are here to talk about a fascinating figure in uh, the the life of the church, uh, certainly a major a major figure in the 20th century church and somebody who was bound up in the drama of the Cold War uh, and in so many of the the struggles that uh, that uh, Europe endured and that the world endured. Uh, we're talking about uh, Cardinal Joseph Min Minzenti, uh, who was born in 1892, very much still during the, the age of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, came of age as that empire is destroyed in World War I, um, becomes a priest, runs into trouble with the communists, then runs into trouble with the Nazis, then runs into trouble with the communists again. He says early on in his memoir, I regarded politics as a necessary evil in the life of a priest. And uh, you've pointed out in a couple of places that uh, Menzenti's biographer, Margaret, Mar Margaret Balog, I don't know how to pronounce her name, close enough, maybe. Margit Mar Mar Balog. Margit Balog, sorry. But she, well, she refers to close enough, I hope. She refers to him as a plebeian conservative. So I wonder if you could just set the stage for us about this, about kind of where he's coming from um, it, as he faces these struggles as a priest in relation to these different totalitarian diabolical regimes. Well, Menzenti was, I think Margie Bellog is absolutely right. He was a ple plebeian conservative in the sense he came from a peasant background, um, maybe a middle peasant, you would say. These are distinctions not. Uh, very familiar to Americans, but um, Hungary was primarily, although not exclusively, an agrarian country. Budapest was a, like Vienna, a huge cosmopolitan city uh, and a world class city um, uh, in 1900, let's say. But uh, Minzenti uh, was a product, I think, of the openness of the church and the uh, the church's educational system. He, uh, he was somebody who benefited from a very good education as a young man. I think his teachers and some of the priests associated with his Catholic schools noticed his talent, uh, not only his hard work, but his native intelligence, his piety. And he was encouraged uh, not only to pursue uh, his vocation as a priest, but to pursue, I think, a serious education. And Mazzetti, I think, uh, because very apparent from his memoirs, he's a cultivated man. Uh, he knew theology. 
He was deeply immersed in the history of Hungary and more broadly of Christian Europe. He, uh, he was, and this is something that perplexes a certain kind of Catholic today who associates uh, Christianity with a kind of global humanitarianism or cosmopolitanism. He was deeply Catholic and he was deeply patriotic. Although um, his patriotism had nothing in common with racialism, with the kind of nationalism that uh, justifies the oppression or even the murder of uh, other peoples. It's really interesting in the uh, late 1930s and again dur during the 1940s when Minzeni, uh, first as a priest and later as a bishop beginning in 1944, as the Bishop of Vesprum and then as the uh, primate of Hungary, the Cardinal Archbishop of Estragon, the primatial see in Hungary, he, all, he often said a very simple response to the Arrow Cross, the Hungarian Nazis, and to national socialism as a whole, its mixture of sort of lupine aggressiveness and uh, anti-Semitism and deep-seated racialism. And his response was that um, we're not allowed to suspend two or three or four of the Ten Commandments. It was just self-evident to Minzenti that one doesn't murder other human beings, that that kind of racialism was based on hatred. It was basically, it's not a particularly, it's not the kind of liberal cosmopolitanism, as I said a moment ago, that many people confuse with the Catholic faith today, but it was a clear cut. I also say sort of deeply conservative understanding of common humanity, of the obligatory character of the moral law on all human beings. At the same time, Minzetti saw nothing incompatible uh, between such, uh, between, you know, traditional patriot, patriotism and a recognition of a moral law binding on human beings as human beings. Go back to your first remark about uh, Minzetti and politics. I think it's true that he did not um, become a priest or become a bishop to dedicate himself to politics. And I think he certainly wished that if he didn't have to deal with these implacable anti-human uh, ideologies in the course of the 20th century, that he might have been able to pursue other uh, aspects of his vocation and calling. On the other hand, he did understand that under the ancient Hungarian constitution, the um, primate of Hungary, the prince primate, as he was called, the Archbishop of Estergam, had certain constitutional responsibilities. And that meant he had a responsibility as head of the church in a Christian nation to safeguard the traditional constitution of Hungary. And that meant to um, to stand up to those who abrogated the moral law, who imposed tyranny of a traditional or a much more dangerous ideological kind in the 20th century. And it meant ultimately, if the established political authorities were not doing their job, he had a responsibility to defend the nation. Remember, Hungarians, the Hungarian nation goes all the way, all the way back to the great King St. Stephen, who brought the Hungarian people into Christianity at the turn of the millennium. And so 
Uh, sometimes Manzini is accused of being too political, but well, he certainly wanted no political power for himself, and he certainly had no theocratic impulses. He certainly saw the Catholic Church as a unique guardian of both the religious and uh, civilizational heritage of the Hungarian people. So I think I think what he said was, you know, uh, uh, was quite right about his own motives and preferences. But at the same kind, I think he had a, a deeply rooted sense of his obligations, uh, not only as the spiritual spokesman for the Hungarian people, but as somebody who had uh, official responsibilities. And that was particularly the case in the 1940s when uh, the communists, through a series of salami tactics, as Matthias Rokosi, the head of the communist, really dreadful and evil figure who uh, was essentially the Stalin of uh, of Hungary between 1945 and off and on until 1956, uh, even though the opposition parties overwhelmingly won in maybe not completely free elections in 1945, and still won in, uh, in, in much more rigged elections in 1947, the communists managed through the manipulation of the secret police, the Ministry of the Interior, plus the, 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 uh, the Red Army's presence in Hungary. They managed to impose a political monopoly and after 1947 really begin destroying the kinds of liberties that I think every European country, even of a politically authoritarian kind, had enjoyed. So from 47, 48 on, Menzenti was the opposition. But his opposition didn't take the, he did denounce political oppression, the rise of a new uh, anti-Christian ideological tyranny. But, you know, he declared a Marian year. And he said, if a million Hungarians pray, I have hope for tomorrow. So his uh, he drove the communists crazy by simply mobilizing the Hungarian people in prayer, uh, mobilizing them, uh, uh, you know, to, to publicly state their preference for the gospel and the moral law over the hate uh, preached and practiced by the communist regime. Yeah. And, you know, reading, especially the early part of his memoirs, you really get the sense of his pastor's heart uh, for for his people and his concern about communism, it seems to me, Dan, is that he's worried that good natured people, good hearted people are going to be deceived by the veneer of humanitarianism that communism offers them. But he, you know, right, right early on in the book, he says, you know, he wants to make it clear that he had he had been a keen student of communism, that he he knew things that he wanted to impart to the people. And he was very worried, as you say, as a patriot, looking out and thinking of the history of his country and the and the rich tradition of his people, the foundation of the family and the faith and everything, and just looking out and and seeing the communists bit by bit strategizing to undermine all of that. And I couldn't help but but think of some of the parallels maybe that we're living through today with 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 uh, certain aspects of kind of the 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 mainstream progressive agenda, you know, to kind of um, to make us all feel terrible about our history, about our country, you know, to just sort of 
um, not look for any good in in what has come before. I wonder if you see parallels there, or if there's you know there's many lessons to learn. I mean, Mazzetti was extremely sensitive to the fact that good-hearted people would confuse, uh, you might say, the poor with the proletariat. They would confuse coercive totalitarianism with care for the underdog, that they would confuse the high demands of Christian caritas with a kind of sentimental uh, compassion or humanitarianism that could be easily manipulated by the totalitarians. And he has some beautiful passages and hard-hitting passages in the memoirs about his fear that good people would be used and abused by um, by the communists at the service of a, an essentially nefarious ideological design. Um, yeah, I published a book in uh, December of 2018 with Encounter Books called The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. It's a serious book. I mean, I look at a whole range of important thinkers who warned against the simple conflation of humanitarianism or the religion of humanity uh, with uh, Christianity, um, uh, going back to Vladimir Soloviev and others who saw that with a great uh, crystalline clarity at the turn of the 19th or 20th century. But I think it's a real problem. It's a real problem within the church. I think we have the highest echelons of the church. We have um, clerics and bishops and others who don't understand that there is an essential difference between um, a, a humanitarianism with tyrannical or even totalitarian propensities and uh, the, the transcendental uh, uh, heart and soul of the Christian faith, which doesn't mean Christians don't have um, deep and abiding earthly responsibilities, but it means we should never uh, confuse the Christian faith with some utopian project to simply eradicate uh, evil from the world or, you know, as some kind of political project for the radical transformation of the present world or the immunitization of the eschaton, that kind of thing. And I, I think that's a real problem. And Mazzini saw that. And about communism, I mean, there are some documents, I think there are 80 documents at all attached to the concluding part of the memoirs, really. And several of them deal with his own personal study of the Christian church under communism, the Christian churches under communism in the Soviet Union. Uh, there's one very, very good one where he talks about how every, sometimes we give the Orthodox church a hard time as if it was simply a toady of or collaborator with the Soviet regime, but millions upon millions of Russian and Ukrainian uh, Orthodox Christians were killed by the communists. Bishops, metropolitans, and others were persecuted. Patriarch Tikhon, uh, the patriarch of the Orthodox Church at the time of the Leninist takeover, was a, a very courageous man. So it was only after a great deal of persecution that the uh, Orthodox Church was crushed. And by the 1950s, it's pretty apparent that many of the bishops and probably a majority of the seminarians were uh, KGB agents. Uh, that was not untrue, by the way, in, uh, in some East Central European countries that were of a more Catholic orientation. So many, many had studied all of that. And I was very uh, struck by the fact that he comments 
that his predecessor as Archbishop of Estragon was a very good man, uh, had uh, convinced himself that because of the common struggle in World War II, because of the great alliance between the Soviet Union and the West, that somehow the communism that emerged from the Second World War would be more humane, more liberal, more open to some kind of authentic Catholic communist dialogue. And uh, Menzenti was deeply suspicious of that, partly because, unlike his fellow bishops, he had made it his business to study uh, the, the lived practice of communist totalitarianism in the Soviet Union and elsewhere after ni- 1917. Uh, so, um, no, I think he uh, he knew that there could be no fundamental compromise between the Christian faith or the Catholic Church and communism. You know, in the 60s, there was a lot of talk of Christian Marxist dialogue. The late Gaston Fassard, the great Jesuit, who was a critic of both uh, French Catholic uh, collaboration with the Nazis and the communists uh, pointed out that these dialogues usually consisted of Catholics capitulating to the imminentist premises of Marxism. And Minzeni, in a less philosophical way, I think knew that in his bones and knew it in part because of his close historical study of what happened whenever the church convinced itself that uh, you know, some kind of genuine accommodation with communism was possible. That's fascinating. And that, that brings me up to, you know, kind of the, the, the meat of the book of the memoirs and maybe the most famous part of his life story is his arrest and his trial and his imprisonment. Um, he's made, he's made, uh, Archbishop, he's made the primate right at the end of World War II, if I'm not mistaken, and really serves after spending several months in jail, being arrested by the Hungarian Nazis. Because the bishops, uh, they don't sufficiently get credit for having opposed the Arrow Cross government, the Hungarian Nazi government, because the government of Admiral Horty had, um, with some delay, finally. put an end to the deportations. The government was forcibly overthrown by the Nazis. These Nazi, these Aerocross stooges were imposed, and the bishops did their best under very difficult circumstances to speak out against the, the racialism and anti-Semitism. So he had spent um, he had spent several, um, half a year or so in Aerocross prison, and then he becomes Cardinal Archbishop of Estergom the leader of the Hungarian church. And then, of course, he was made a cardinal by Pope Pius XII in 1946. And he he serves just a few years. He's very concerned about the communists' um, uh, rolling back of of certain uh, of religious education, for example, of you know the, the the Hungarian Catholic way of life, things that he he thought were were essential. Um, that he, as the pastor to to Catholics in his in his land, had to stand up for. But he's he's ultimately arrested, and um, you know, reading the, reading the the memoirs. It really, it it reads like something right out of a film. And in fact, there was a film, The Prisoner, which is based loosely on Cardinal Menzenti's uh, experience starring Alec Guinness. I found it funny, actually, in the memoirs at the beginning that Cardinal Menzenti says, 
that he thinks that the, the big problem with that movie is that it makes prison in Hungary look like staying in a hotel or something. You know, it, it, it has, there's no resemblance to the brutal experience that he had living for, I believe, eight years in, in, a, in a communist prison in, in Hungary. So I wonder if you could just fill, our, fill us all in on kind of what brought him to that moment. What, what was the communist big beef with him and, and what, you know, what was his experience like standing up to them, but also having to endure this horrible experience over these years? Well, after I already spoke about the salami tactics, the cutting up of the opposition and the whole of civil society by a government increasingly run by the communists, despite the fact that the smallholder party, a middle-class agrarian party that defended Christian values and was broadly supported by Catholics in the 45 and 47 election. The 45 election, the smallholders won 57% of the vote. And as I mentioned before, even in elections that were where there was much intimidation and the presence of the Red Army and control of part of the press, the communists only managed to get 17% of the vote in 1945. But by 1947, uh, uh, by the way, in Hungary, the names are backwards. So it's Minzenti Joseph, uh, Naj, Ferenc. But Ferenc Naj, the prime minister, was uh, uh, ousted on spurious charges. Many of the smallholder leaders were arrested. Opposition press or anti-communist press was closed down. And then, as you mentioned before, there was a series of measures, a land reform program. And by the way, the church was very open to land reform, but it did not want to see the replacement of uh, personal proprietorship. And of course, the church owned some land and those who rented from the church helped uh, pay for the Catholic educational system and and for the, the, the rich charitable and uh, work of the Catholic Church. So this was really the land reform that concentrated land in the hands of the Hungarian Communist Party and regime, a collectivization of agriculture of the kind that had unfolded in the Soviet Union between 1920 and 1935. And the confiscation of the Catholic schools really meant that education, uh, education, liberal education, civic education, spiritual education would henceforth be monopolized by the Communist Party. And that would make the institutionalization of a system of totalitarian ideology and propaganda uh, 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 inevitable. And so uh, Minzani continued to speak about all this. Uh, and by, let's say, the beginning of 1948, the political opposition was gone. You might say any real uh, vigor within what was left of civil society was gone. Um, there was an increasing monopolization of power by the Hungarian Communist Party. And there really was just the Catholic Church led by Minzeni. I should say Minzeni because some of the other bishops lacked his courage and fortitude, and some of them would end up collaborating in the 50s, I should say under very, very difficult circumstances. One doesn't want to judge some of their behavior too harshly. So um, I already mentioned the Marian year. 
Medzeni continues to travel throughout Hungary, you know, drawing crowds of several hundred thousand, sometimes a million. It was very clear that he symbolized this firm, principled opposition to the imposition of totalitarian communism on the Hungarian people. And um, it was really only a matter of time. Minzeni was arrested by the AVO. When I was in Hungary in April, I visited the headquarters of the AVO, which is now the um, House of Terror. It's a very interesting building, 60 Andrasi Street. It was the place where Cardinal Minzeni was tortured, um, sleep deprived, uh, uh, beaten with rubber truncheons all over his body, his genitals and all of this. He uh, um, he had a defense attorney named Shisko, who was uh, an official of the Communist Party and who did nothing to authentically defend him. It's interesting, 60 Andrasi Street had been the headquarters of the Arrow Cross, where their uh, political police tortured people in 1945, 1944, and 1945. It was taken over and almost instantaneously made the headquarters of the AVO, uh, the Soviet secret police, the Cheka or MVD of Hungary. Uh, and it was there that Mizeni was tortured uh, from December 26th, 1948, through his trial in February of 1949. Um, and now the House of Terror is probably the best anti-totalitarian museum in the world. You see the torture chambers, but every room provides uh, a, a really ample education as to on the methods, but also the ideological underpinnings, first of the Arrow Cross and then of the communists. And I applaud uh, Premier Orban and the Hungarian govern government for making an af active effort to educate uh, the new gen uh, the younger generations about what totalitarianism was. Throughout the Western world, there's been very little effort made to sort of teach the most important lessons about the totalitarian episode of the 20th century. Uh, and I think one of the, the shocking things about the treat, one of the shocking things about the treatment of Minzenti uh, during that six week period is how this man of tremendous courage this man of tremendous fortitude was broken. Now, he wasn't completely broken. He wrote in Latin on his confession that this was under duress. I think the whole world can see that he had been brutalized and dehumanized and finally not broken because he maintained his dignity and his independence of spirit during those eight years of communist captivity and uh, when he was liberated uh, at the end of October, the beginning of November 1956, during the anti-communist Hungarian uprising, also known as the Hungarian Revolution, he, uh, he had lost half his weight, but they started feeding him again in late 54, 55. So the, the picture on the cover of the book, which is him addressing 
the world press on November 1st, 1956. And then he subsequently gave a great radio address, which the communists later distorted. He wanted to go back to the old regime. He wanted to take away the land from the peasants. He wanted a, you know, a reactionary fascist, hungry, all nonsense. You can read his address to the nation of the world from November 3rd, 1956 in the book. But um, um, yeah, I mean, that was, those eight years were extremely difficult. The latter half of his captivity, he did get visits from his mother, uh, who would also visit a simple peasant woman of deep faith, deep patriotism, deep fidelity. She visited him in prison, and she would later visit him on a regular basis uh, between 1956, early November, November 4th, when he took refuge in the American legation, it was then called until her death in 1960. So uh, there's quite a story there. And one of Manzini's books that has been in continual print uh, for the last 70 years is his book called The Mother. Uh, he wrote it in, uh, I believe, the 1920s, but it's a sort of Marianist-informed reflection on motherhood as a human, familial, civic, and sacred phenomena. And that bond between him and his mother was very important. So those eight years of suffering were, um, uh, uh, I, 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 I should say that Mizeni's character was already shaped, but he showed courage and dignity and fortitude during those eight years. And um, he really was a hero in the Western world. Uh, there were huge demonstrations in January, February 1949 in Dublin and Paris and Rome. There were schools in the United States and elsewhere that were named after Cardinal Menzenti. He made the cover of Time magazine. Um, I think he was the most famous churchman in the world. Uh, and uh, less so today because I've already referred to our inability to pass on the experience of of of, of uh, several generations to the next. But uh, uh, in any case, uh, those eight years are truly formative and uh, may take up a good deal of Mizeni's description of his life and uh, you might say the agony of Hungary under communist rule. Yeah, you know the the parts where he talks about his mother and her and her love for him are very moving in the book. And one of the most heartbreaking parts of the whole the whole memoirs is the part where he talks about how he can't go to his mother's funeral when she dies because he's not able to leave the the American compound there. And um, it was it was it was very powerful and and funny too because in the film that's lo based loosely on him, his mother is this different kind of figure. We don't need to get into all of that, but um, I was actually surprised because I had seen the film before I read the memoirs and I was expecting he had this very complicated relationship with his mother or something, which is the way it's depicted in the film. In fact, the, the communist torturers sort of use his sort of almost hatred for his mother in some respects as a, as a weapon against him. Not at all the case in real life. I mean, his mother is a real St. Monica sort of woman. I mean, just, you know, her tears are, are yeah. so life-giving for him. I think, uh, as you already alluded to in the opening pages of the memoirs, Mizeni, when he did meet Alex Guinness, who he appreciated, you know, just pointed out that the movie had very little in common with his own experience. He was treated, you know, in the movie he's treated as a sort of privileged, semi-aristocratic figure who is having this dialogue with his torturers. And, and you're absolutely right that he has complicated uh, relation with his mother. 
which is used and abused by the communists. None of that is the case. He and his mother were exceedingly close. And there's no doubt, I think, that his own mother, as well as his deep devotion to Mary, the mother of Jesus, the mother of God, inspired his book, The Mother. And you're absolutely right. That description of her, of um, the 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 you know the sorrow and and the, the the deep impact that his mother's death had, and 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 the inability to go back to his ancestral village to mourn his mother along with his extended family, uh, because he would almost certainly have been put under house arrest, probably in his native uh, village uh, of Mizent. And uh, and no doubt his statements and comments would have been manipulated by the the party and secret police. So that was simply not an option for him. Um, I did learn something interesting about he and his mother when I was in Budapest in April. So I can reveal this to the listeners. This is not told in this book, but I met uh, two people of uh, real interest. Uh, Andras Diak, who uh, has edited many of uh, Menzenti's letters and papers from the American legation, along with a Dominican uh, historian priest, a Hungarian, and uh, Menzeni's 90-year-old nephew, the brother of his, uh, the son of his brother. And they told me that um, there's a book that's continuously been in print in the United States, a series of addresses and speeches and sermons of Menzeni's from the 1940s, 50s, and then a couple of things he wrote in the early years in the American Legation. It's called The World's the Most Orphan Nation. It was published in German and English and French in 1962. Um, I never knew how that was snuck out of the embassy. It was done by his mother. For whatever reason, his sisters, who were the only other people to visit him, one would be allowed to come with his mother. They were always searched, but they never searched his mother. And she carried out the manuscript and through uh, a kind of under, underground circle, uh, it made its way to Germany and henceforth into translation in some major Western languages. So that was, a, that was really fascinating to find out that his, that was the last, during the last visit that Cardinal Mazzini's mother had made to the American legation she was quite willing to do what she could to make sure that his message got out to the world. So that, that is a, that's an, a, another uh, revealing moment in the relationship between Menzenti and his mother. She would often report what was going on in the villages. He was very pleased and she was very pleased that the people of their native village remained deeply devoted to the Cardinal. In other words, they had not been, ideologically corrupted by uh, the communists. And that and, and there was a huge outpouring for his mother's funeral in 1960, which was further evidence, I think, of this bond between uh, Minzenti and uh, uh, the people in his home area. And it seems like that bond existed throughout Hungary, uh, because there's a great part in the memoirs, actually, when the, the revolution is happening in 56 and his and his um, jailers are saying, you know, well, we need to kind of get you somewhere safe, you know. And he, and he says, nonsense. I, I'll, I'll go right out and be with, be with the people. This is no, no problem. And sure enough, he, he is, and, and he is just welcomed with open arms and celebrated. And, you know, um, 
it seems like that continued that that there was something about his witness um, that I mean, even if he dropped off the radar a little bit, that that it was known that the the primate of Hungary was in the care, the custody, not care, the custody of the communists, and was suffering in a sense for them, and they knew that. Would would you say that that even down to the present day, he's sort of remembered or celebrated as someone who's just beloved by by Hungarians? Very much so. I mean, for people in the Vatican by the early 1970s who were deeply invested in Ostpolitik, Ostpolitik, if I can put it this way, was a mixture of um, old-fashioned realpolitik with the Vatican Secretary of State, Casaroli, and others, who I think had no ideological sympathies for the communists, but thinking it was always the mistake. It was a mistake the church made in 1933 that it could do a traditional concordat with uh, Nazi Germany or 1929. I think it was probably more possible to come to an agreement with Mussolini's Italy as the church did in 29 because it was a less openly and aggressively totalitarian regime. But the um, you know you still have this with parallel today with China, this idea we can you treat these governments as ordinary regimes that are not deeply and abidingly anti-Christian. And uh, that can often lead to the betrayal of the most steadfast Catholics who have sacrificed so much for the truth of uh, fidelity to the church. And they're off, they often feel neglected by this. You know, in Hungary, it took the form of bishops and priests who were peace priests, you know, who collaborated with the party. It's one thing to come to deals, localized deals with the communists in order to allow for worship, in order to allow the sacraments to be lived. It's another thing to to make, you know, serious compromises with uh, the communist regime. And I'm afraid after Menzenti's death in 1975, Cardinal Lequet, who was the his successor as Archbishop of Estergom, uh, he died in 1986. I don't know if I would call him a collaborator exactly, but he insisted on the full fidelity of the Catholic Church to the People's Republic of Hungary, and even to you know a sort of ideological collaboration between Catholicism and state socialism. And I can tell you, if you go to Estergom, you will see prayer cards, you will see flowers, you will see messages, you will see many people around the tomb of Cardinal Menzenti, who was a great hero to the Hungarian people. And I should say he was named a venerable by the Catholic Church on uh, February 2nd, 2019, the same day that the Vatican announced that Cardinal uh, Newman would be uh, canonized later that year. So the pairing of uh, Menzenti and Newman in early February 2019 was a real treat for many of us. But no, Menzenti is a hero of the Hungarian people. Now, the Hungarian left the people who want Hungary to, to become secularist, to adopt the LGBTQ agenda, to ide- the people who identify freedom and human dignity with limitless human autonomy. They're not crazy about Cardinal Menzenti, but Hungary, even... Hungary uh, um, still remains a largely Christian country and maybe even more so a conservative country. So 
even non-believers or those whose faith is more passive or tepid look up to Cardinal Menzenti as a man of great faith and moral integrity and patriotism. So I come back to the uh, Cathedral at Estragon in front of Cardinal Lequet's, uh, uh tomb. There's nothing, you know, he's forgotten. And I asked a couple Hungarian Catholic friends, um, including uh, Menzeni's relatives, the historian uh, I referred to, some younger Catholics who were deeply informed about the situation and the church and the country. And they all said the same thing. People would prefer not to think about him. Perhaps some of what Lecay did was necessary, you know, to hold hold things down, you know, until the country was freed. But um, people would prefer uh, to honor the memory of Menzenti, you know, the the uncompromising fidelity to faith, to country, to the moral law. And Cardinal Erdo, who is sometimes considered a Papa Bili, uh, he's uh, uh, Papa Bili, he's the Cardinal Archbishop of Hungary and a very impressive churchman. It's known that he deeply admires Cardinal Menzenti. And uh, it was Hungarian bishops who took the initiative beginning in 1994 to open up the, the case for canonization. So Mazzani is really, this is not the, you know, Hungary is often uh, attacked in the West as, you know, authoritarian. It's not. You know, we got an, you got an opposition in Hungary. Uh, uh, they control some of the major cities and they're, you know, 30% of parliament and they lost the last uh, elections rather uh, by a rather large margin to Fidesz, the, the more conservative party headed by uh, Premier Orban. But um, it's a party that includes the unrepentant ex-socialists and a neo-fascist party called Yabek. So the fact that the Biden administration and many progressives in the West feel more comfortable with a Hungarian democracy proffered by ex-communists and Nazis than they do with a patriotic and religious version of democracy is quite interesting. It is interesting. I, just by the way, I, I think some days that I, I must be the only conservative who hasn't been to Hungary yet, because it certainly does seem to be the, 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 place, the place to go. And no doubt, Cardinal Menzenti, from what you're saying, is somebody who, whose legacy very much shapes this, this identity that people are fascinated with now. Um, in the moments that remain, I wonder if we could just skip to, to kind of the end of, of Cardinal Menzenti's story. I was really struck at the end of the memoirs which were published very, I think, very shortly before he before he died. Obviously, he's still, you know, we're still a long way away in 1974, 1975 from the end of the Cold War. As you were saying, there's this this Ostpolitik. I mean, I think people people in the West were more or less just kind of making their peace with the fact that, well, maybe we'll always have a Soviet Union. Maybe we'll just have to get on with things or whatever. Turned out not to be the case, of course. Um, but the last thing he says in his memoirs, Menzenti, is he says, this is the path I traveled to the end, and this is how I arrived at complete and total exile. Full stop. That's the end of his memoirs. And I, I, I found that, you know, it was like reading Psalm 88 or something. It was, this, it was this moment of, you know, darkness is my only companion almost. I mean, he... Um, you know, he, he, had, he had made this journey, but had not lived to see the, the fruit, 
be borne out of his courage. And in fact, you know, not to get not to get too deep into the weeds, but you know, I know just reading his words, he was he was very disappointed in in Paul VI. He was very disappointed in how ultimately he he finished his his career and his life after you know the steadfastness that he had that he had shown. Um, I wonder if you could speak about that just a little bit, and maybe just kind of wrap up the tale um, of of um, Cardinal Minzenti. Um, you know, I, what do you make of that? Just his relationship with the Church at the end of his life. I think he was severely disappointed, but so was Cardinal Wyszynski in Poland and Karol Vativa, the Archbishop of Krakow, by what they saw as increasing ideological and not just pragmatic accommodation with the communist regimes. And of course, that would all change dramatically when Votiva became John Paul II, Pope John Paul II in the fall of 1978. Um, I mentioned Cardinal Casarelli. There were elements in the Vatican who I think had a certain ideological propensity toward Marxism, or as I said, toward an excessive version of Christian Marxist dialogue, people who believed in the theology of liberation, who thought we could do for Marx what the church had done for Aristotle in the 13th century. You know, it really matters who you're doing it for. And, uh, you know, Aristotle's defense of natural right and contemplative wisdom is a little different than uh, uh, Marx's historicized atheism. In any case, um, you know, Montini, uh, the Archbishop of Milan, the future Paul VI had carried a cross in 1956 in uh, witness to the suffering of Minzenti in Hungary in the streets of Milan. But um, just as Minzenti, you know, Paul VI was long suffering about the challenges to Catholic moral doctrine and uh, uh, you know apostolic truth during his papacy, he um, it's hard to know what motivated him uh, during those years, but. He did make the decision, and it was cruel, I think, to announce it on December 26, uh, 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 1973, to announce that he was taking away all the uh, uh, responsibilities of Cardinal Menzendi as Archbishop of Estergom, although he did not fill the seat he, until Menzendi died, uh, the, the, he did not replace him. Uh, as Archbishop of Estragon, but he made a very curious and I think deeply troubling set of remarks shortly after, afterwards, saying that he lifted the excommunication against all party and secret police officials who've been involved in the arrest and torture of Menzeni and the persecution of the church. Well, the man who was Minister of Interior uh, during the arrest and trial of Menzendi was Janos Kadar, who was then uh, General Secretary of the Hungarian Communist Party, the man who came to power after the 56 uh, uprising. And, and, and you know, after, uh, after some real, uh, uh, you know, terrible repression, did liberalize a bit beginning in the 1960s. But um, so that was the first step, you know, to lift the excommunication and then there was the troubling remarks of Pope Paul VI that Cardinal Mazzetti was not a victim of the atheist state or totalitarian impression, but he was, quote unquote, a victim of history. Margie Balog, who we began mentioning, the 
great biographer of Cardinal Manzani. In fact, it's called her book, The Victim of History. Somewhat ironically, I think. He was a victim of history, but uh, not as some abstract force, but as, uh, you know, the the the, the malevolence of, uh, of communist totalitarianism in the 20th century. So those remarks are very curious and uh, unsettling. And, and as you said, Cardinal Menzendi did not live to see the pontificate of Pope John Paul II. There's a beautiful picture of Pope John Paul II praying at Menzendi's tomb at Mariel in Austria in 1988. And he would later pray at his tomb in Estragon on a state visit to Hungary in 1992. So that's the end of the story. In fact, Menzeni did not uh, did not end up in complete and total exile. He returned to Hungary spiritually. Um, but he didn't, you know, he, he left in, a, in his final will. He said, I should not, my body should not be returned. And I should not be given a Christian burial in Hungary until the last soldier of the Red Army has left. And there were still Red Army soldiers in uh, 1990, and he was returned to Hungary. And his uh, secretary, I think, went on a hunger strike, saying that the cardinal had had insisted. You know, Hungary was on its way to freedom, but uh, his secretary thought his wishes were being dishonored because once the Red Army was completely gone from Hungary, then Cardinal Menzeni thought his return would be uh, uh, needed and welcome, but um, I don't think the people who did that, either the secular or church authorities, meant any harm. But uh, uh, they, perhaps they didn't understand Cardinal Mazzetti as well as his uh, secretary did. But I agree with you. There's something very forlorn about the conclusion. You know, it does remind you of one of the Psalms that sense of complete abandonment, and um, and one wishes. Uh, well, of course we. We know that Cardinal Menzenti has some sense of how things have turned out. Indeed. Dan, you, you conclude your introduction by saying, let us honor and remember Joseph Cardinal Menzenti for his fidelity to truth, faith, and country during the age of ideology. The book is Joseph Cardinal Menzenti Memoirs with an introduction by Daniel J. Mahoney. Dan, thank you for joining me today on the Ignatius Press Podcast. My great pleasure, Andrew. Thank you very much. This episode has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. Please visit us at ignatius.com. Follow us on social media and be sure to rate and review this podcast. Until next time, I'm Andrew Pettiprint. God bless.